Welcome to Shared Life. Dr. Ronan Doyle, how are you, mate? Welcome back to the shed. Thanks very much for having me back. Yeah, I'm doing good, man. Doing what have you been up to, mate? What have you been up to since we last spoke? Um, well, quite a bit, to be honest, yeah. Uh, had some volunteering, um, doing coronavirus testing uh, for a few weeks in uh, what they call the, the Lighthouse Labs in Milton Keynes. Right. Uh, and yeah, that was a, it was an interesting experience. And since then, obviously, um, uh, they've opened our labs back up as well now. Okay. So, uh, we're back, back to work at, at the London school, hygiene, mm. tropical medicine, uh, and, but you know, things are, things are slightly different and, um, a lot of research is, is still on hold, but, um, it's good to like, you know, kind of be back in the lab a bit. Yeah. So you're saying uh, things are kind of on hold for certain certain uh, parts of your research and work. Is that mainly because of coronavirus, obviously, and that kind of taking the forefront of things? Yeah, so uh, coronavirus is kind of, is still, uh, like, because it's international research, obviously, even though the UK is not in full lockdown at the moment, mm. there is large, um, large amounts of the world is. So a lot of our research is based out in sub-Saharan Africa uh, and which is now experiencing uh, quite a large uptick in cases. So there is, um, you know, um, quite, you know, quite a bit of uh, kind of country, quite a few countries on, on lockdown uh, around that part of the world, which is kind of hampering our research efforts. Right. And generally, you know, people aren't interested in other things at the moment. They're interested in, in coronavirus, uh, yeah. quite rightly, maybe. But, um, mm. but you know, there are there are other serious infectious diseases happening out there. Yeah, of course, absolutely. Like some of the ones which occur in Africa, are they I mean, are they still prevalent, or is it a case of coronavirus just taking over everything? Uh, well, I mean, all of no, all of the other problems are still there. You know, um, mm. tuberculosis uh, is still a comparable um, is causing comparable deaths to coronavirus at the moment uh, worldwide. But obviously, is not doesn't receive the same sort of attention as um, kind of something that you know is quite novel and is is sweeping mm -hmm. the world quite rapidly. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So yeah, no, all the original, all the original issues in infectious disease research are still there. They're just mm -hmm. kind of being pushed pushed back a bit uh, okay. out of the forefront. No, fair enough, man. Um, going back to your, um, you said you you've done some volunteering work in uh, in in Milton Keynes, I believe you said. Uh, can you walk mm -hmm. us through a bit more of the kind of stuff you're doing there, just for us uh, people interested? Uh, in your, uh... So that was the 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 testing that the government are carrying out on. So people, when they go to uh, those car park testing centres, or if they've done a home swab kit or anything like that. Um, if you've done anything in the south of England, generally all of those samples get sent to uh, the Lighthouse Lab in Milton Keynes, which is at the, the UK Bio Centre. Uh, okay. And there you've got a kind of workforce of, um, well, it was, it was all volunteers to begin with. I think it's now mainly paid staff. Uh, about, uh, should be about 200 scientists working around the clock, um, right. trying to work out if those samples have coronavirus in them or not 
Okay, so it's basically you all were just testing everything that came in via the UK, basically. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, yeah. Lorry loads of um, swabs would turn up every day, and you'll you'll run them through your uh, through the the test that that we use to find out whether they have coronavirus or not. Okay, but from your experience, like how and, and maybe understanding how um, how accurate are these tests? Would you say is is one one form of a test maybe more? Do you mean accurate than another or? The, the, the test, that, so they use a, a PCR, what's called polymerase chain reaction test to um, amplify uh, the amount of coronavirus on a swab sample that you take from someone's nose and mouth until it becomes, as it, until it gets to a level that you can actually get a reading from that. And as a test to, to, to look at whether there is uh, enough, vi uh, whether there is virus in the sample, it's pretty good. It works really well um the so there are other types of tests that kind of get bandied around in the media a bit one of them's the antibody test which is mm. a kind of is a different test it tells you whether you 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 did have coronavirus at one point and we weren't doing those but okay. as the, the test we were doing works works reasonably well and is um it's quite quite rapid you can get a result back to back within a day um uh yeah and there are some other tests being kind of uh communicated recently that the government has bought some quite um what they call more um uh, rapid diagnostic tests so tests that will give you an answer in minutes and mm. generally can be done uh kind of at the point where you um sample the, the person yeah uh so how well those work is quite unclear because it's very hard to get uh, to see the data which they're based off, you know, mm. how well they work. Very hard to get to see any of that data. And it's kind of um, either, either it hasn't been released or it, or, it has, or it doesn't exist, but either way, I haven't seen it. It's mm. a good point. I know we were talking um, earlier and we were talking about something we mentioned as the coronavirus market and how the mm -hmm. industry not just your industry but a lot of industries are adapting currently um to this pandemic right um mm -hmm. what 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 are some of the main points you can maybe tell us about things in your industry like i know you mentioned this testing this rapid testing thing that's come out now um, yeah. but other other sort of examples of things which are really becoming you know in the forefront due to corona in an industry point of view uh i think well for academic research i think um, the the two major things is everything is geared up towards coronavirus research now. So basically, um, you're finding a lot of laboratories are shifting over from whatever research they were doing previously to try and hoover up some of the money that's being released by large charities and organisations um, mm. uh, to do with coronavirus. And then added to that, unfortunately, some of the other charities and government funding that was available for other um, infectious disease research is now being pulled so I know already of a few people who've lost their, their funding for projects they've been planning for, for years around some fairly serious diseases um, and but I that's kind of the way um, thing, things go in, in research you've got to do you've got to go where where the funding is unfortunately and um, that means putting your heads together and coming up with some um, coronavirus research. Mm. 
But isn't it like, like you were saying, this is such a phenomenon where it's swept the whole world, where sort of things would be, whether it's testing or I don't know, vaccines or anything, these kind of things are becoming to the public maybe even quicker because everyone will be kind of sharing their research and sharing their knowledge. Um, but it kind of seems more of like a race, like a, almost like the space race back in the day, do you know what I mean? Where one country wants to be the, the yeah. leading, do you know what I mean? So yeah, is that, is that accurate yeah. or is that? Yeah, there, there is a lot of collaborative and open research going on, but there is also a lot of people uh, making a lot of money out of kind of being handed quite fat government contracts. Hmm. Um, so for example, there is uh, one of the new um, point of care uh, DNA tests that um, that were being released, like the rapid one that was meant to be uh, work in a few minutes, yeah. was developed by a, a company who has never created any diagnostic tests as far as I can see before. Uh, and when you look at their website, they sell a bracelet that tells you what, um, based on your, your DNA profile, tells you what food you can and can't eat when you walk down the supermarket. So yeah, it's like weird stuff like that. And suddenly they get given millions of pounds by the government to develop a, a diagnostic test. Um, it's, it's like, you, you wonder what's kind of going on. Or you wonder mm. where, how these contracts get given out and stuff, because it's not generally to the people doing the actual research. Right, yeah, that makes sense, man. Yeah, this business side of things has definitely grown. It's interesting, but you're right. I think there has been collaborative efforts, but there's definitely been a race against uh, who kind of gets the cure or the vaccine, right? As uh, probably leads me to our next question around the uh, uh, the Russian vaccine, which we've um, heard about in the news recently. Um, mm. What's your thoughts around that? Because uh, it was it was sort of documented that they skipped the phase three portion of the vaccine. Yeah. Um, could you explain to us maybe some of these phases and what, what you know, the significance of skipping this phase might be? Yeah, so there is a, so generally, well, there's a huge, like you said, it's a bit of a space race and there's a huge amount of um, people developing vaccines at the moment for a coronavirus. I think there's around 170 vaccines being developed. Oh. I'm probably over that at the moment. So generally most of these uh, vaccine developments split into phases. You, you generally have the preclinical phase, which is just trying to find a good target for the vaccine and a lot of kind of uh, very basic laboratory research to see that you've, you've, you've found something that would work as a vaccine. Um, so phase one is you would generally be testing in, in healthy adults um, to check for safety and correct dosage. There's phase two where you're testing in kind of large groups uh, and also that would usually include people who are at risk or or at developing the, the disease you're actually looking to vaccinate against. Mm -hmm. And then phase three is your kind of huge efficacy and safety trials. So where you move to testing in, in thousands of people um, and that usually that is quite a, it's an incredibly expensive, costly and time consuming stage because you're trying to work out all of the quite maybe minor um, um, safety problems that might come with the vaccine. Right. So at the moment, out of you know, those hundreds, uh, like you know, near 200 vaccine in development, there are only seven vaccines that are currently in phase three for coronavirus. So oh, wow. um, very small number. And, you know, 
the so the 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 goal for all of these vaccines is to generate a new vaccine from scratch in a little over a year. So mm. the fastest we've ever developed a working vaccine before was the mumps vaccine in the 60s, and that took four years. Oh, wow. So from concept to, to approval. So they're you know trying to cram even the fastest we've ever developed before yeah. into a single year. Um, like it would be a massive achievement if it happened. Sure. Um, and and then you've got to keep in mind, you know, there's some viruses like HIV where we've been trying to develop a vaccine for 36 years and with no mm. luck. So that you know, I'm not saying that coronavirus is anything, anything like HIV. It's not, but mm. um, but it kind of you kind of put it in perspective when we're trying to develop a vaccine yeah. in a, in a year. So the fact that the Russian vaccine then they've kind of announced that they've got one that they could put into. So what, what I've uh, read is they're going to kind of give it to um, uh, very uh, like at risk patients, but they won't go through phase three trials. I, you know, it's, it's a massive risk and I don't really understand what good comes out of rushing a, a vaccine for coronavirus. Cause this is not a, a virus with like a, a 50% case fatality rate. Um, it's a, it, it's got a, a it's very incredibly infectious and it's got mm. a, 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 a it's a very serious virus but to dispense with safety regulations in order to rush a vaccine out um seems quite dangerous it's you've got a you've got to think that what we don't need is a, a really bad news story for vaccines because there is already quite a large uh, seemingly um very angry group worldwide that uh, 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 a very angry anti-vaccine movement worldwide already yeah. and to provide any yeah to provide any more flames for <laughs> the anti-vaxxers seems would, would be absolute madness yeah. i mean it's i think it's worth noting that um that putin also claimed to have a working virus uh, a working virus a working vaccine um during the Ebola outbreak in 2014 as well, and absolutely nothing came of that. Um, we, oh, ne right. we never saw it. We never saw or heard of it again. Yeah. So he has, he does have history of making claims, <laughs> but China has also claimed that they will um, skip some of the safety steps as well uh, in order to develop a vaccine that they can give um, to mili to their military personnel. Mm. Uh, yeah, the phase three, phase three. Um, of a vaccine development is incredibly important. Um, and there are many, there are uh, many examples down the years, even the last 10 years of, um, of vaccines passing phase two and looking really good, getting mm -hmm. to phase three and then um, big uh, toxicity um, problems were discovered in phase three and they've had to be aborted. Oh, wow. That's so, nuts. so there are, there are case studies where this has happened. Um, it just so, shows yeah, how, seemed... yeah, it just shows how vital this stage is and the stage uh, phase three. Sorry. Yeah, massively, massively. But you know, um, um, sorry, Karen. Yeah, go. no, no, go on, go, go ahead. And I was just going to say, with uh, phase three, um, like I'm still baffled as to um, how do you know how long is long enough to test a, a range of human population, right? Because what's to say if you test for, I don't know, two, three, four months on phase three, that 
six months down the line, side effects might appear, uh, might start appearing. Do you know what I mean? And also, um, when you mentioned you have, they, they take a sample of people, maybe at-risk people, or, you know, whatever. What's to say that their lifestyle is radically different to the person next to them? Because I'm, I'm assuming they're not all like um, in a quarantine box for four or five months while, while they're being trialed, right? They all get on with their lives mm. and they might take different... Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, yeah you're not going to lock people up for, for, that, for that period. But um, you want it to work in a subset of the population that represents the population as a whole. So the whole, see, yeah. is, the whole idea is to use as many people as possible. Uh, okay, so, so spread that um, demographic kind of as well. So you do get people yeah, yeah. with different lifestyle habits and stuff like that. Exactly. There's obviously no, there is no limit to how long you could test a, a vaccine for. But there is a, a cutoff point where you have to say, you know, we've, we've, we've shown that we tested in this many people for this long. Mm. There is a point where we need to get this uh, vaccine out. Um, I think the key is always the the, the number of people. Really, um, we don't have examples of you know. Um, there's been no like examples where ten years down the line it turns out that there, you know there was unheard toxicity events. Okay. Um, but yeah. you do find very rare examples of it happening in certain people. So you, mm. the, the key is to get as many people as possible into your, into your trial to be representative. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's just basically, it's always a risk, like you said, but the risk really lowers after a certain time period passes with trial, trialing. Yeah. Like. And, and even, even you, 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 would, you would be fine with minor side effects if it protects you from the disease, because obviously mm. the disease is much more serious than minor side effects. Um, yeah. you're just trying to find out if there's anything that is really kind of, um, you know, that will, will make someone seriously ill. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Man. Um, just going back to the, the point you made, I think it was about the, um, mumps vaccine where you said it was the quickest yeah. so far, um, four years. Um, but currently in like today, obviously that, that was a long time ago with the science and the stuff we know now and the technology we have now, is that, is that still feasible? Um, time in terms of speed like do you think okay that was the fastest so far but with what we know today and yeah. the technology we have could it could really really see be a lot quicker yeah well I mean it, it, it kind of has to be a lot quicker because the the because the alter well the alternative is 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 no no vaccine for four years which um uh I, I think the earliest you could possibly um, put approval of a new vaccine after after safety trials would probably I think my guess would be early twenty twenty two. Okay. Um, but, so still a whole year away. Yeah. Mm. That, that I mean their their aim is to get it out earlier, but I can't really see it it happening any earlier than that. I, we, um, I hope I'm wrong. Mm. I think the, the earliest we might see a vaccine is 2022. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, going back to that other point you just made then, uh, no vaccine for four years, just as a hypothetical, what would actually occur if no vaccine is produced? Like, how do you see it affecting society? Would, it, would you just be seeing multiple waves, peaks and troughs throughout you know, the next four years or, I don't know, forever? Yeah, like you, I th well, well not, not necessarily forever, but you would, you would certainly see it... Um, uh, persisting for quite a while. I mean, if you take um, Spanish flu, for example, the 1918 pandemic, mm. uh, that virus is no longer in circulation. 
like you you can't find that virus uh, really amongst uh, people anymore. I think it still is in um, an an some animal populations, and sometimes it jumps over uh, very rarely to humans, but it eventually got replaced by other seasonal viruses. So you've got to think that respiratory, you know, there are hundreds of respiratory viruses and they are fighting over space within the population. So at the moment, this pandemic strain of coronavirus is it's SARS-CoV-2 is winning because it's completely novel and people haven't been exposed to it before. So it can jump quite readily from person to person mm. and is incredibly prevalent now around the world. But when you think that uh, eventually as it, people keep getting exposed um, and that we carry on with social distancing or, or more lockdowns or things like that, eventually the virus becomes so rare in the community that, you know, people, um, there is a kind of a form of herd immunity that happens. Uh, and, you know, th this has happened with like quite a few viruses. And it might not go away for a while, but it will be at such a low level that it will probably get become part of the group of seasonal viruses that we get uh, every winter in this country. Um, and will probably only flare up in kind of specific circumstances. Uh, and you, you might have a few localized outbreaks, but nothing really that you'd see. It would eventually tail off and nothing that you saw, nothing like what you saw in, in, the, in its first outbreak. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so that generally kind of what happens with, with okay. these kinds of um, viruses. So the vaccine isn't, it's not the end of the world if it does not get produced, basically. It will be around in society, but it will tear, tear off, like tail off a little bit, kind of. It's, it's, it's hard to predict how long it will take, though. That's mm. the thing. We're, 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 kind of, we're kind of guessing we're kind of guessing what's going to happen in winter. So, you know, like we've got a very low level of community um, transmission happening in this country at the moment, but we're okay. kind of guessing what, what's going to happen in winter and we don't really know. So we, we wouldn't know how long the virus would be around for, but the vaccine is a kind of, a, a working vaccine is a guaranteed way of controlling it. Mm. Um, and it, it, that's kind of doing more for, getting everybody back to work and the economy back ticking over and all yeah. the kids back to school and stuff like that. Um, whereas without the vaccine, this kind of disruption that we're seeing at the moment will carry on for, for quite some time. Hmm. That's a good point you made, the sort of seasonality aspect of this, because what we experienced was basically spring and summer so far, right? Mm. But mm -hmm. what, what, what are the, I mean, apart from the obvious dangers, but if you could just sum it up, what is the real risks that, that can occur going into winter with this sort of virus still in the, uh, in the population? Well, I think there is a kind of general agreement now that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the pandemic COVID, has like, it is pretty much a, a seasonal virus. Um, so what, so I think that, um, so this, we know this kind of because of, the, basically what's happened in the northern hemisphere after the first peak but also mm. that we're now seeing you know things like south america south africa um southern part of australia are now experiencing large outbreaks in their winter yeah. um so 
so as we go into winter again now there'll be people will be spending more time indoors the indoor air will be drier and uh, you know less well ventilated and we know that other coronaviruses also have this pronounced seasonality as well that they they cause the common colds mm. that we get in in winter so um so we could see further outbreaks as we move into autumn probably even before winter hits but what we don't i think i think i could be fairly certain in, in saying there's going to be a, a second wave mm. but what we don't know is how serious that wave will be so okay. will there is there more is there more immunity in the population than we think um you know is the fact that we're now we now have all of this social distancing up and running we can go in we're more used to possibly going into another lockdown um there's a, a supposedly a test and trace system that exists in this country to track cases so you know so are we more prepared now than we are the first time so will it not really be a, a, a as big a spike when it happens yeah. again yeah, I mean, also to add to that well, list, that uh, wearing masks and stuff, right? That's like yeah, yeah, exactly. Thing. All of yeah. yeah, yeah. So all of that, all you know, that all mixed up with the social distancing. People know to you know keep apart, wear masks. All of this stuff might help. Hmm. Um, but also, we don't know how this virus is going to interplay with the hundred other seasonal viruses that uh, will be also coming up in winter, along with the big one, which is seasonal flu yeah um you know all of these um all of these viruses are competing for people to infect and replicate in so um when you know when when the first when the first um uh pandemic hit back in you know february march hmm. uh, in this country um coronavirus skyrocketed and all other uh, viruses that cause you know, respiratory tract infections absolutely bottomed out right. and, and almost dis, almost disappeared. But now that that now that we're coming into winter, it's going to have to compete on a more level playing field, I think, with other viruses. So that might, you know, that might go some way to to dampening the second wave as well. Okay, so we're, just... we're still gonna, we're still we're still going to have a problem with seasonal flu. Yeah, of course. So anyway, just to, just to clarify what you what you just said. Um, the competition of the virus of all the viruses alongside coronavirus going into winter uh, this might be a stupid question but just to clarify is it a case of if you already have one of them it's harder to um, obtain another one or is it a case of if you have one you're more susceptible to um, attract another one, maybe because your immune system or something is lower or i don't know you're more open good, to viruses it's a good question but they generally you you find people quite rarely I think have mixed infections with these kinds of respiratory viruses. It's not a case of once you get coronavirus, you're going to pick up four or five other, other different viruses. You know, um, uh, it's usually a case that they get out competed within, within the population and generally uh, drop off in prevalence to quite low levels. They don't disappear completely, but they'll generally mm. drop off. So wouldn't you be better served trying to, I know this, this is not uh, feasible, but wouldn't you be better off trying to get the normal seasonal flu and try and block your body from picking <laughs> on corona? <laughs> I, I well, the problem with catching, I think the problem with catching flu is that you'll generally clear it out in a couple of 
uh, in a couple of days. Just keep uh, and and <laughs> and then then you can't just keep catching it either. <laughs> so it you, you'd have to get your timing spot on. And uh, also, I, I, yeah, I can't um, I can't uh, condone the ethical, <laughs> the ethical treatment of just giving everyone seasonal flu in a population. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? There's something about the government saying they're just going to give like as many people in the population the flu jab coming going into winter, right? Isn't that kind of yeah. def- does does the opposite of what we're trying to well, what I try to suggest, which is obviously not right, but yeah, but but seasonal flu is also uh, seasonal flu is also a significant killer in both the mm. old and the young. So that you do have to protect yourself from that anyway. And um, the young as well. Yeah, yeah. So flu. Flu is actually a flu is a, a deadlier disease in 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 young people compared no to coronavirus, oh, wow, which I is which is which is pretty much uh, as far as we can see uh, in very young children. Um, you know, it, it it the case fatality is almost negligible, mm. but um, but but flu is flu is quite a serious disease for young people. That's interesting stuff. All right, so we've we've basically um, concluded that the the second wave in the UK is kind of a a, a case of when rather than if. Um, mm-hmm. What we don't know is obviously the the actual damage it will be, like how strong it will be, mm-hmm. and how much impact it will have on the population. Um, what, yeah. what, what's your thoughts of maybe if it is quite serious, like from what we've maybe similar to what we witnessed in the spring and uh, early parts of summer. Um, in terms of another, going into another lockdown and what were your thoughts on the government's um, easing of the lockdown we just came out of? Um, well, it obviously makes sense to ease lockdown when you have quite low numbers of cases. There, you, there, is, there is no feasibility that the country would carry on working or that you, know, you wouldn't have... A, a, an even bigger recession than we're going to currently have if you kept the country in lockdown. Mm. Uh, the way they're easing it, I mean, there's been arguments over easing too quickly while we still have quite a high number of cases within the community. I think there's still quite a large ongoing argument about the reopening of schools um, because the I, I think you can't that reopening of schools does cause extra transmission like there's no there's no way you could argue against that but it's just a question of whether it's acceptable given the amount of transmission that would happen if you did uh open schools um and so so you could see like there's this problem where we're gonna schools are gonna reopen in september kind of just as the weather begins to turn Mm. and we um lockdown restrictions will probably be at the most lax uh, and then you're going to kind of create this opportunity for the virus to spread amongst different households again Um, but yeah there's no easy I think there's no easy straight answer to this really Mm -hmm. the um, the like Denmark is often flouted as like a good example of um, schools reopening and something that could be copied here but I think there's like something in the way they've done it, which I don't see happening in this country in September. So um, like daily new cases in Denmark, although it is a smaller country, were under 70 when they reopened. Whereas we're regularly hitting over a thousand new cases a day still in this country. Um, Mm. 
you know, older children studied from home and young children uh, went to school in group classes of 12 maximum. And children were asked to stay at home if they, like, if they had a, a parent that did not work. Classes were held outside, you know, wherever they could. There were staggered entry times for kids in the school and stuff. And there was no crossover of kids and adults working. I think like even, but even with all that, the school, the cases still increased when schools reopened. They just didn't increase very much. Um, but, you know, what they're trying to do with this country is they're just trying to reopen schools in the same way that mm. they were before. There's no, there's no capacity to have smaller classes in staggered times with like, you know, that split over more staff. You know, state schools in this country are already, you know, at, at kind of uh, at max capacity anyway. Yeah. So I think, I think like just reopening them in the same way doesn't work. You have to do, you have to do something differently. Uh, you, you kind of see, um, you kind of see this, this might, the only people really with the resources to do that in this country are private schools. Yeah. So then you get this kind of situation where they will be able to open COVID safe and state schools will just be left to, you know, You're just increase the gap can. then, right? You increase the gap yeah, exactly. to the type of education you get and all that stuff. But exactly. But and, and, you know, you already have this thing where we have this, um, massive difference between uh the death rates in um like uh b bame communities compared yeah. to non bame uh and then that's only gonna that gap's only gonna get bigger as well because obviously that's they're in the most deprived areas with usually the worst and underfunded schools yeah that's a good point that's very true i mean i was going to suggest is there not a case of you can do um almost i, I get it's a money thing but almost a thing like um, footballers and stuff are doing in terms of regular testing in schools, maybe even before they open up the schools and just to, you know, if you know, you know, then if you've got it, you don't go. Do you know what I mean? It's quite simple, yeah. but that's a money well, thing I'm assuming. Yeah. Well, all of everything points that you have to have this massive test and trace system in operation, which also I don't see happening either like they are they are trying to they are trying to develop a way to increase even to so to test to do that kind of mass testing in schools you need a huge number of tests to be run on a on a regular basis that is true yeah. and so you need to massively increase capacity beyond even what it is at the moment um and yeah that, that that's although we have now this like larger increased capacity thanks to these lighthouse labs Mm. It still isn't it still isn't at the at the it's point yet it's not enough yeah yeah that's fair enough man yeah it's interesting to see what happens um so i mean with the easing of lockdown there's been a lot of disputes with i guess different people um in different backgrounds like one i've heard of um quite a lot is that okay i get again you understand both arguments both sides but like okay like your, your husband for example can go down to the pub now but he's not allowed to be in the delivery room with me when I give birth to our child. Do you know what I mean? Like those kind yeah, of arguments yeah. and they, they seem far-fetched. You understand the economic reasons for it, but like this is a, on a human level, those kind of things that still stick out, do you know what I mean? With the, the easing of lockdown. Uh, yeah, definitely. And it, well, it creates, it creates a, uh, a kind of, uh, level of distrust between people and public health officials 
which doesn't help them when like when you actually need to advise the, uh, the population to do something because because people don't think that what you're telling them makes sense anymore um yeah it's a, it's a difficult like it's a difficult uh balance mm. and uh i well i, I mean mis like mistakes have been made and i don't think they've, they've got it particularly right but it, it is quite a hard job to do and it is a difficult balance for this public yeah, messaging yeah definitely um so i mean just just staying on that the second wave kind of point if if we were to see um if we were well sorry when we do see if and when we do see a second wave do you see us going into a whole national lockdown again or do you think it's kind of going to be like little pockets areas pockets of areas that we're seeing at the moment just can keep continuing i think things would have to go incredibly badly for us to go into another full lockdown it would have to be a localized lockdown i also think things will i think what will happen in this country my guess is that uh uh, things it will be dependent also a large part on um, the pre-existing immunity in the population which is different in different parts of the country so you've got places like London which had a huge outbreak that far outstrips other parts of the country which mm. will have a, a, a kind of won't have as an uh, unexposed number of people anymore so it will not experience the same um, second wave as uh, another part of the country like the southwest would where there is a larger amount of exposed unexposed mm. people so there, there's so much um there's quite differing um populations across the country which me makes me think a full lockdown would be a stupid way to go and a more localized um effort makes more sense but also right. again this you could do localized um you could do a localized uh lockdown if you knew who who actually had coronavirus and you were tracing their contacts and mm. you had everything under control then it kind of works really well and you could kind of keep dampening as things start to pop up you could keep dampening it down in bits and pieces of the country where it's happening yeah. um, and then you can allow the country to carry on pretty much as normal with like social distancing and that. yeah but um but yeah so yeah i don't, I don't uh short answer is i don't think a full lockdown will happen mm. again I mean, sticking on that point that you mentioned about the test and trace kind of stuff, right? Um, mm. I, I mean, I haven't heard anything of it now because there's no more of these sort of daily updates and all that. But mm. what what is the latest? Do you, know, do you know any more about that? Like, how is it going and stuff? Like, I know, I know they're in the process of developing an app and that flopped. So then they went to another yeah. provider, but I don't really hear much about that test and trace kind of stuff. Yeah, the apps were, there was a number of apps that were huge flops. Another, another company came out of nowhere and was handed millions of pounds to develop an app, which was then, which was then completely scrapped. But, you know, they kept all the money. Um, it's, uh, to be honest, to be honest, it's hard. I don't, I know very little more than what other people know. I know our capacity for testing is much greater than it was back in, in March. Yeah. So, I think if a second wave, you know, you, you had this thing in March where everyone thinks that they had coronavirus, but no one actually knows for sure because there was no testing. Yeah. So obviously I don't think that's going to happen again. I think people mm. will get symptoms and they will get tested. And so we will have a little bit of a better idea about who is, who is catching coronavirus in the second wave. The tracing system, I know absolutely nothing about. It's very hard to get any information on it. There's only the stuff that you see in the media and, and stuff yeah. about 
um, the people working on it just yeah. with their feet up and not actually doing anything. <laughs> uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't inspire confidence really. But I, yeah, I don't know. Is the short no, answer that's fair enough? <laughs> uh, mate, you, you mentioned the um, uh, sort of London as an example of maybe people um, sort of witnessing maybe more immunity now right? Because they mm. had a, a f absolute flurry of cases during the height of, uh, of the first wave. Um, what more do we know about reinfections? And because obviously there's, there's you know, differing, um, mm. different news reports about how you can get reinfected, how you can't. What's your point of view yeah. from it? And what if, you, if you've got any information for us, that'd be great. Uh, yeah, so immunity to, immunity to coronavirus is like a huge thing at the moment i think a lot of people are, are, are kind of rightly like fixated on it so um there's kind of a so basically whenever they've done kind of large scale um uh, antibody testing of um people in this country there is always the number of people coming back with positive antibody levels is much lower than the number of people who are actually reported symptoms or possibly of having coronavirus. Uh, there's also cases of people who have tested positive for coronavirus and then tested negative for the uh, antibody test. So there is a bit of a discrepancy here. Um, there's, but the, the thing we can say is there is still kind of only anecdotal evidence of reinfection occurring. So, there is no properly recorded or published accounts of reinfection with the appropriate test to show for sure that this is someone who has caught coronavirus, recovered, and then caught the same virus again. Mm. So from, because that doesn't exist, we can, that does suggest quite good long-term immunity to coronavirus. Mm -hmm. um, we're not seeing yet big numbers of reinfection rates happening to people who have been previously exposed. Uh, we still have no idea really how long um, immunity uh, lasts, but there's also kind of like different types of immunity, immunity as well. So, um, so we've seen in specific, where specific outbreaks of SARS-CoV-2 have been documented properly, uh, they have like, you know, people have been properly tested with the PCR test and the antibody test. They've generally found the vast majority of people do get infected so there isn't this pre there isn't this previous um uh levels of antibodies that people have uh in in the unexposed population there is they've interesting they they have found that in children so there is some children so they think this is another reason why um children don't get it uh, as badly as other people but there isn't in in adults um so this to be expected because it's a, a novel virus. Mm -hmm. So what we found is that although people don't have protection against infection, they do seem to have some protection against disease. So you get this kind of group of people with uh, lots, so they could have the virus, but they won't even know that they're ill, really. Um, right. So is, is that asymptomatic so, so they, people? So asymptomatic people, they won't. Well. I mean, they won't know that they had the virus because they probably won't be getting tested or yeah. they will have very, very mild symptoms mm. and they might even disregard them. So the thought about this is that there is some sort of preliminary evidence that there's this pre-existing so pre immunity to, to the virus from another part of the immune system, 
which is uh, called your T cell response. So, um, so the key thing is this doesn't stop you getting infected, but it does dampen the severity of the disease. So it helps your body fight off the infection once you have it, but it won't stop you getting infected by a novel a novel virus. So you can contract so they, the, you can contract the illness, but you won't necessarily show as severe symptoms if you have these T response. Yes, yeah, then you might even be asymptomatic. So there mm. is a thought that there could be a larger proportion of the country that has been infected than ah, people okay. know, because they weren't testing at that time anyway. Um, although, you know, this is disputed by the large antibody studies that have currently been carried out. So, but you know, antibodies are only part of the way that we, we fight infection, although they are incredibly important and mm. it's something you want stimulated by a, a vaccine. But, um, but say like they recently done a, a large antibody test in Italy and they found only 2.5% um, of the population have antibodies, but wow. this, there's absolutely no, resemblance to you know the numbers that were being hospitalized at the time reporting symptoms the, yeah. the death rate you know so there there has to be something else going on we think that's, so that's you know a good point so there's a like so there's quite a bit of talk and research going into that at the moment i don't think it's it's going to explain everything hmm. um and it's still not a it's still not a reason to not try and you know develop a vaccine as quickly as possible and it's not a reason to expose your entire population to coronavirus and yeah, you know just completely just completely come out of lockdown mm. uh, i don't think any of that but it might might be good news in the coming um winter if we see an uptick of cases that things might not be as serious as we thought previously sure um Doc, can you explain a bit more about these T cells? Like, what just um, high level overview? What what exactly are they? What exactly are they, sir? So, uh, I'm not an immunologist, so uh, <laughs> apologies in advance. <laughs> but they're your, they're <laughs> so they're generated by they're generated in your your thymus, and they get they they work by being uh, taught to recognize um, uh, foreign, uh, foreign bodies that enter your system. And when, once they're taught, they can become quite long lasting, what they call memory T cells. So these can last generally the life, the lifetime, your entire okay. lifetime. Yeah. And they will memorize that um, specific um, infection that you had before and whenever you see it again they can quickly generate a, a response they can generate other immune cells and, and, and recruit other immune cells in to destroy that infection as it comes into your body okay interesting interesting so, yeah. stuff they're, they're, yeah. I mean they're an incredibly integral part so they're the thing that gets um they're the thing that gets depleted once you have kind of full-blown HIV. Okay. So the thing about HIV is it destroys that part of your immune system. And so you no longer have this um, response. So, you know, in, with HIV patients, it's not, the, it's not the HIV virus that kills them. It's the fact that it destroys the T cell part of their immune system. Um, and then they, 
are liable to infection from everything else uh, okay. uh, in the in the environment even if they've previously been exposed to it they have no memory of any infections anymore and they'll get lots and lots of different environmental infections that will um which will cause serious harm to the patient uh, and may eventually kill them all right so that's so if you're someone with hiv that that virus is killing your t-cells basically but in yeah. terms of what symptoms you have after that's occurred it could range from yeah. anything depending on what infection you get okay yeah yeah, yeah that's so they, yeah, they're, they're a really important part of the the immune system mm. that's quality man interesting um is there sort of like any evidence or anything that you've heard, uh, you know, in the pipeline or in, in your field about this virus kind of adapting, you know, you know, whether it's becoming more deadly or it's evolving or anything like that? Yeah, I saw quite a few different articles coming out about the virus evolving to be more deadly and more transmissible, which I really can't see. When you look at it, you can't really see any evidence of this. I mean, the virus does evolve over time. Uh, all all viruses do everything does that has you know um, every you know every living thing whenever mm. we copy our DNA or RNA we introduce errors into that copying these are random mutations that happen um, uh, and it's the exact same for us and it's the exact same for viruses um, so uh, these random mutations are happening to this current pandemic strain it involves slightly slower than than other viruses and generally we find the pandemic strain to be incredibly what we call clonal which is they all look pretty much the same around the world okay um so this is this is like fairly normal because it probably originated from a single jump from an animal to a human host and then mass and then multiplied out from there so because it because all of these viruses come from this original single virus they're all going to look quite similar um, right. so, uh, and that single, that, you know, the, they're from, they've all got like basically the same parents mm. and, and that they, that jump only happened about a year ago. So there isn't really any time for any major changes to happen in the population. And it's okay. a really successful virus It's spreading readily through a susceptible population. So I think it's unlikely to have any evolutionary pressures on it that might lead to, these kind of random mutations occurring that will cause it to become more deadly um, just because it's, it's working so well as it is. Um, there's, there's, there's no kind of, any, all the studies that have been done have shown very little difference between kind of either virulence or how easily it is trans transmitted mm. between any of the viruses isolated from anywhere around the world. Yeah. So I don't, I, it, it, at the moment, it, it seems like it's not becoming more deadly. Okay. So, I mean, the analogy to use, like you said, like if we say their, their parents, like you mentioned, were like, I don't know, the bat or something like that, one, one animal mm. which we started it, then these guys are all the mm -hmm. kids roaming around the, the world. So you, mm -hmm. until, they, until they have kids, it's not going to adapt or become more deadly or evolve, if you like. Yeah, I, it'll, be, it'll be quite a way, I think, down the line before you see... Uh, kind of meaningful different strains of, mm. of this um, of this coronavirus emerging, but I do think that this virus is going to be around with us now probably for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we eventually will see probably new stuff of, emerging from it. But there's new viruses emerging all the time. This isn't 
the first or the last. So, but at mm. the moment, yeah, it's fairly, it's fairly yeah. stable. Interesting stuff, man. Um, one question I had for you, um, Ronan, was um, what what more has kind of been learnt from a you know an epidemiology or virology standpoint uh, since we last spoke? Because obviously it's only been a few months, but you know the the, the pace mm. of this industry that you're in, especially, it must be learning new stuff every day, right? Especially, like you said, the, yeah. the major topic of discussion is coronavirus. Yeah, I think um, a lot of stuff I've been seeing recently, I suppose, is um, uh, like a big question everyone wants answered is when does a person, when a person is infected with coronavirus, when do they become infectious? So when do they get to a point where they can start infecting other people. So the big thing about this coronavirus pandemic, uh, I mean, I, I, I mean, maybe there is more viruses that act like this, but I, th I think what's thrown a lot of the test and trace systems is that we know for sure that you are infectious before you show any sh symptoms. So you've get this asymptomatic transmission that's mm. happening all the time. Um, and, you know, that, that was shown quite early on in, in the pandemic as well. So now, like in the more recent studies, I think since we last talked, we have shown that around about 50% of all transmission of coronavirus is pre-symptomatic. So before the person shows any signs of illness, um, which is like, you know, quite a huge percentage of the, yeah. the actual infection, infectious events that are happening. Uh, Wait, so sorry, 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 button. But you're you're basically saying the, the the numbers are saying that you become more uh, contagious, if you like, before you even sh uh, start showing symptoms yourself. Yeah. So yeah. you're contagious. You're contagious. Fifty fifty percent of the people are contagious before they've ever shown symptoms, oh, and not wow. even just contagious. They are they are actively spreading coronavirus wow. before um, before they before they ever show symptoms. So this That's is. Mad. So this is incredibly makes it incredibly difficult to contain the virus mm. because you generally only test once someone shows symptoms. So by that point, they've already spread the virus. So it doesn't, you're yeah, the, you're already slightly yeah. too late. But doesn't that make the track and uh, track and trace? Was it where it's called trace and test? Yeah. Where it's called doesn't it make that whole sort of system like null and void if you're already spreading it before you've been tested Doesn't not completely kind of... because you because you could still if you could still catch if you could still catch the contacts of the person who who the person who so the person might have transmitted to three people hmm. uh if you then catch that person a few days later and you've tested them and they come up positive if you can contact those three people they transmitted to and also get those people to self-isolate yeah then okay. you can start you you'll break start the chain break, you start breaking the chain yeah okay yeah. okay sorry yeah, so you know sense, you might have caught you might have caught the first one a bit late but you can hmm. try and proactively work on the next set of cases yeah um so so there's only a small amount of data but it kind of shows that you're at your most infectious uh, about um, before you're, you're most infectious before showing any symptoms. And after two weeks of symptoms, you're not infectious at all. Oh, wow. So, 
So like, that's like quite a, like a key thing to base, you know, a lot mm. of policy around, which is even if you're, even if you, most people, even if you are still got some symptoms, if you've got a cough or something like that, when they actually measure the amount of live virus coming off people after two weeks, there's basically nothing at all. But the, the, but the, the, um, but they're, they're actually, they're most infectious just a few days before they ever show symptoms. Mm. So the problem is that if you're, if you're incubation, if catching the virus, it can incubate two weeks before you show any symptoms is actually, we don't really know when in those two weeks you're most infectious. And it's really hard to find that out because trying to get, people into that kind of study is it is it like a different difficult kind of mind game um so so you've got these people who are like um spreading amongst the population so like lots of different people what we would call a super spreader Mm. which is you know when you get these super spreader events where you know tens of people have all become infected from one single person and we know that this is happening before uh, that person has ever been uh, shown any symptoms of coronavirus. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a really important type of person that we need to be able to, to catch in order to be able to control the virus. What, what makes someone susceptible to being a super spreader exactly? Because it's not just it's, behavioral, right? It's more it's, biological. Well, it, it, it's kind of, it could be a mixture of both. We're not entirely hmm. sure. So the, um, also incredibly like difficult to prove there is them that there does seem to be some people who seem to be more uh who can spread coronavirus easier than other people we don't know if this is some sort of uh genetic thing or whether you know there is definitely behavioral aspects to it as yeah, well of course like yeah. we see we see you know super spreader events happening in uh, meat packing plants and stuff mm. because there's certain people who within their job would be in contact with lots of other people in an environment that is very very good for spreading viruses and that mm. can lead to super spreader events so you can't say that that person is but there is definitely you'll see this in lots of different um viruses but you'll find there are some people who just generate more uh what we call um viral shedding so virus coming off the the person they live virus being like ex, expen, exposed from their body you find just some people generate more virus than other people. That's mad. That is mad. Viral mm. shedding. No association yeah. to shed life, but that's absolutely not. No, no, so no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you don't want shed life to come associated with viral shedding. No. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, like this biological thing you're talking about, viral shedding, is it, is it something like, like if you went to the doctors, they'll be able to tell you, oh yeah, you shed more virus than others. Or is it something which is just, so, so much of a phenomenon that like you don't, you need to go through vigorous testing and stuff to find out if you're a super spreader. Yeah, I, you know, it's not, it's definitely not something you can get diagnosed. It's a very, it will be a very poorly understood, you know, you need, you need quite a large scale study um, of, you know, un, like, you know, tens of thousands of people who have all got um, coronavirus, mm. uh, which we don't even have in this country at the moment. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah. uh, the the understanding of these this kind of transmission is poorly understood, and 
doesn't I don't think it will will know anytime soon mm. fair enough man it's interesting stuff um did you hear about the um the public health England being scrapped a couple of days ago or something in the news yes so this is something that was so I've got colleagues in public health England and I volunteered with public health England before mm. during the Ebola epidemic in 2014-15 uh, and it was announced that they were being disbanded in a uh, article in a paywalled article on the Telegraph is where I think a lot of PHE colleagues found out that they were they were being disbanded um, so I mean this country uh, to be honest the Public Health England hasn't existed for very long. Uh, previously, it was the Health Protection Agency. Okay. And then when an, a previous government decided that uh, that, that needed um, uh, rejigging, so they created Public Health England out of that. And uh, now, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it, it's hard to know what's going to happen because the, the 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 current line is that to save us from the second wave that we're going to create a new health protection agency out of public health of England. Yeah, I don't think that's what's going to help in the second wave. There's there's a I think a slight bit of a deflection of the blame game from the mm. government onto public health England. At the same time, I would say that there is a lot of there, there, I would say there seems to be a lot of problem within public health England because of the mistakes they made early on in the pandemic, which I think we, we talked about on the, on the last yeah. podcast as well. Mm. Um, there was definite mistakes made and someone should be held accountable to that. I don't understand the entire disbanding of a, an organisation to become something else. I don't understand what that brings to the table, but, you know, We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff. Mate, another thing, if we're, while, we're, while we're on the sort of latest news subjects, I, I read, I think just today, um, something about Heathrow Airport proposing like coronavirus testing for passengers arriving in the UK to kind of shorten yeah. the, you know, the, the mandatory quarantine time. I mean, I personally think that's a yeah. good idea, right? But how feasible is that with all the amount of flights and all this uh, and the other? So, so <clears throat> testing, testing people coming into the country uh you is 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 a good idea in theory one you need a reliable quick test um which i don't i don't think we have at the moment i mean we talked about this um uh, the dna bracelet company making a, a a rapid diagnostic test i don't we don't know how well that works we don't know whether that's going to be implemented at heathrow the pcr test takes hours um, so you'd have to report back to, you know, you could swab patients as they come through and report back mm. to them later. That's definitely something that you could do. Um, airport testing works uh, when you don't, so when you don't have many cases within the country. Um, so when airport testing works is at the start of your pandemic, when your country is COVID free and other countries aren't, and you want to stay COVID free, yeah. you test at the airport um, and you stop people coming into the country who might be ill. Mm. Uh, we didn't do that. And now we're introducing airport testing. So I, it won't have, it, it will have some, it will have some impact, but it won't have a very major impact on the number of cases yeah. because coronavirus already exists now in the country and is still being transmitted amongst people already here. 
Yeah. So it won't stop. It won't stop a second wave. Mm. Uh, it might stop some more localized outbreaks, yeah. but, and it's very useful once you have eliminated um, a disease from your country. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think. Yeah. I think. So, I, sorry to jump in, uh, Ron. Just, just yeah, quickly. I, I, I think it's more to do with allowing people to feel comfortable about going abroad. Do you know what I mean? Because mm. a lot of people want to go abroad, but then they don't want to quarantine maybe when they come back for like two weeks, yeah, for example. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. maybe it will you know, deflect some of that as well. Yeah, but you're also you're, you're relying on your test being able to pick up um, a, a positive case, mm. you know, who might, who might have only just been incubating the virus for a couple of days. So if That's... your test isn't sensitive enough to pick up that person, yeah. then two weeks later that person will still become ill and uh, will still okay. then transmit the, transmit the virus. So there isn't anything safer than quarantining mm. for two weeks, unfortunately. But um, I, it, will, it, it will possibly allow you to identify some positive uh, cases that you, yeah. will, that you will, were otherwise uh, missed. That's a good point, though, because like you're talking about the incubation period, you could as mm. sort of as late as picked up the virus in the plane journey back, right? And surely that's yeah, not going to be enough exactly. time for that virus when you land to uh, that test to pick it up. No, no, mm. it won't be. Uh, but it makes it look like you're doing something. So I guess. It's really <laughs> <good>. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right, um, Doc, uh, we've had a. Uh, insightful conversation and learned as usual a lot from you um i'm, I'm going to end on one more question which um i kind of just thought of while you were talking uh, it, again it's a silly question because that's all i asked but um sars <laughs> one <laughs> sars one and sars two right so covid is the sars two um yeah yeah what what, what what's sort of the difference between them because obviously sars one was nowhere near as infectious right but in terms of the like yeah biological makeup of it how come it's how come it's sort of spread like wildfire number two across the whole world and number one i don't know maybe wasn't as well it didn't spread across the whole world did it that's uh that's a million dollar question that is a million dollar question it is, it's actually literally a million dollar question I think you, could get a research, you could get a research proposal written up for that and they will give you a million dollars to find out give me a um, team. yeah yeah, unfortunately, we, we, we don't know. I mean, there is there is some preliminary research on on what makes this virus a pandemic strain and 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 the, the original SARS virus not as transmissible. Mm. Um, so, generally, to do with what receptors um, it binds to in in the human body. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's. It's an ongoing, ongoing research and mm. something I think we'll, we'll, we'll eventually find out, but we, we don't know for sure. But it's definitely something that people want to know and yep. it's something that people want to know for the future to be able to predict. So, you know, predict what will be the next pandemic, where will it come from, what's going yeah. on, what, uh, what viruses are, should we be focused on. But, but you know when you say it's a novel virus, which am I right in saying that means what it's a new new sort of virus, right? Which hasn't been. It's, it's a very they're, they're very different they're very different viruses. Okay. So they don't share two, yeah. they don't share similar characteristics. They're just 
they, they do say, they, they do share some similar characteristics, but they are, they are novel enough that your immunity to the previous virus mm. give, gave you, does not give you immunity to this uh, okay. current pandemic strain. Um, but the, uh, but there are some like at the, at the genome level, they are fairly similar viruses. Mm. So they will share some, they will share some characteristics and they're yeah. from the same family. So, you know, there, there yeah. are shared characteristics across all that family of viruses. That damn family. Interesting yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot out there. There's a lot out there. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of, uh, yeah, these neighbors. All right, yeah. Ronan, Dr. Ronan Doyle, as usual, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for your time. Um, like, like I said, it's been really insightful. I'm, I'm sure our listeners will love uh, listening to this episode. So, um, yeah, any final words or thoughts from yourself? Uh, no, just thanks for having me, man. It's always great to chat and it's always a, a really interesting conversation. Definitely. All right. Cheers, Ronan. Um, people at home, stay safe. See you later. Bye-bye.